Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Welcome to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. I'm Lizelle and I'll be speaking with leading experts and familiar faces from the world of wellbeing to bring you wellness wisdom you can really trust. Now this week we are going to be covering an area of women's health that well we've kind of really yet to dive into on the podcast here and that's all about fertility. And a truly leading expert in this area is Mr. Stuart Lavery, a London-based consultant in gynaecology and reproductive medicine, who I have just had the great pleasure of chatting to here in my wellbeing studios. He's just genius. He's a consultant at the Hammersmith Hospital IVF unit. He is an honorary senior lecturer at Imperial College Medical School. He's published over 50 peer-reviewed articles and is the official spokesperson for the British Fertility Society. And we had a very, very interesting chat all about his journey into reproductive medicine, the first steps for couples struggling to conceive, the ethics of fertility interventions, and the surprising role of the microbiome. It's all about gut health. It's a truly fascinating conversation and I'm so looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Instagram after the show. Now, don't forget that if you would like to watch our chat, you can now do so. You can find the full video podcasts over on the Lizelle Wellbeing YouTube channel. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. So Stuart, welcome to my little studios. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Before we get into so many specifics, because it's such a fascinating area, can you just talk us through your journey and how you came to be doing what you're doing? Sure. Um, I've been in the current job for nearly 24 years. Okay. Okay. But it's flown by. But I didn't start off in reproductive medicine or infertility. I started off actually in obstetrics, uh, delivering babies. Mm. Um, and I trained in Africa in mission hospitals. Did you? Whereabouts uh, in Africa? In South Africa. Okay. Uh, and my first job in obstetrics was in a tiny mission hospital in Zululand. Fantastic. Um, and we delivered about four and a half thousand babies, which is exactly the same as my current hospital, Queen Charlotte, delivers. Really? The only difference was we only had two members of staff, um, uh, medical members of staff, but some amazing midwives. And mm. it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Um, I was uh, 21 when I did it, yeah. and I think at that stage uh, I knew it was for me. Yeah, um, brilliant. But, and then along that journey, uh, I've changed from being a general obstetrician and gynaecologist to specialising in fertility. Yeah, uh, came over to London uh, and was really drawn in by the field of pre-implantation genetics, which was just starting off. 
Uh, and it was the most amazingly seductive science. So pre-implantation, so that's working with cells and embryos, sort of mixing eggs and sperm, is that...? So it's the stage after you've mixed the eggs and sperm together, so you have an embryo, but it's doing things with the embryo before you put it back into the woman's uterus. So the, the work was originally aimed at women who carry genetic disease, right. and it gave us the ability to diagnose the genetic disease in the embryo and then transfer embryos that were free of the genetic disease. So the women knew from the very start of the pregnancy that they were reassured that the baby was healthy and didn't carry the genetic disease itself. Right. What sort of genetic diseases? So the common ones, cystic fibrosis, right. uh, spinal muscular atrophy, thalassemia, sickle cell disease. So diseases that affect thousands and thousands of women. Yeah. This technology gave them the amazing reassurance that they could start the pregnancy without the worry or the concern mm. uh, that their baby would be affected by some of these terrible conditions. And has that continued successfully today? It has. It's kind of become routine now. Really? I mean, to me, being involved at the very beginning, it remains incredibly exciting yeah. in what we can do. Uh, but it's now practiced in many hospitals around the world. Uh, and it was pioneered at the Hammersmith Hospital in London. That was the first team uh, that mm. were able to do it. So now you are connected to the Hammersmith, Correct. aren't you? So it, what's the first port of call, really, if, if, if a couple or a person is having difficulty in conceiving? How, how does the journey start? For the vast majority of couples, it would start with uh, a trip to the GP. Right. Um, that's still the first port of access. Uh, and the GP is well placed to give some initial advice in terms of maximising your chances of actually doing things naturally yep. and hopefully avoiding going to the fertility clinic. Right. Um, but also setting up the first baseline series of tests really to find out um, is everything working or all the bits there and is everything in working order. Mm. Of course, these days, the vast majority of patients will also be surfing the Internet and <laughs> looking for alternative sources of advice. And there's all sorts of advice out there, some great quality uh, and some perhaps possibly more commercially messaged and, and less good quality. So sometimes to find your way through that path, um, we would still recommend a visit to your GP to start the journey. OK. And then what about if you are looking online? What, what are the sort of recommended resources that you would say, you know, these are decent sites to look at? Yeah, there are some official resources that we recommend. Mm -hmm. So in this country, the British Fertility Society run a great website with lots of patient information on it. Great. There is the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology called ESHRA which again has some fabulous uh, patient information. And then finally, we often recommend the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Um, it's more of an American slant on things, mm. uh, but nevertheless, there's still lots of valuable resource in terms of, and patients can be reassured that when they access these websites, you get an unbiased message. Yeah. Uh, whereas many of the clinics that are out there, although they, they have excellent pieces of information, they may tell you or they may suggest that there might only be one way of doing things. Right. OK. And at what point should a couple uh, be worried or be concerned? I mean, how long on average does it take to, to get pregnant? Is, um, is there an average? So for most couples trying, after 12 months of trying, about 80% right. of couples will be pregnant. OK. So for most of our couples, we will suggest them if you've been trying regularly lots of sex at the right time for yeah. about 12 months uh, and nothing's happened it might be worthwhile doing some tests mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the population data actually trying for two years is entirely within normal limits okay but it can be easier to have that conversation with a couple who are 23 and say go away try a little bit longer uh, yeah whereas if the couple are 38 or 39 yeah. time becomes more sensitive and so i think we would always give that advice in an individualised context. Mm -hmm. And what sort of initial tests could you expect to have then? So there are a couple of basic things that we recommend that most of our patients go through. Uh, 
The first one is an assessment of ovarian reserve in the woman. So this is a combination of a blood test, usually called an AMH, and an ultrasound scan to look for antral follicles. And this gives you an idea. What is your personalized ovarian reserve? How many eggs have you got left? Oh, really? And that's important to understand time sensitivity. Yeah. So if you have loads of eggs left, you might be able to take a more relaxed, staged approach mm. to things. Are women born with different numbers of eggs then? Uh, there is a huge difference, both in terms of the number of eggs that women are born with, which is about 450,000. That sounds an awful lot. It does. And, and it beca most women think that I just lose one egg a month when yeah, I ovulate. Yeah. But of course, you wouldn't be menopausal till you were age 300. If that yeah, that's true. That doesn't work. So you actually lose hundreds of eggs each month. Really? Which most people don't realize. No. Um, and so an assessment of where are you, you know, if, if you are 32 years old, are you miss average 32 years old? Yeah. Um, or are your eggs on the 90th centile and mm. your ovaries think you're chronologically younger? than yeah, you are. Yeah. So that helps us guide women on the timeline. Mm -hmm. um, we would then also do an assessment of pelvic anatomy, so an ultrasound scan, which will look at the uterus, the ovaries. Is there anything there that's making it more difficult to conceive? Are there cysts, polyps, or fibroids? Mm -hmm. We'd usually do a test of their fallopian tube patency as well with a little bit of dye. Mm -hmm. um, this used to be done by an x-ray, but these days can be done very accurately at the same time as the scan. So that would be pelvic anatomy check, tubes, ovaries, numbers of eggs, a progesterone level to say, am I ovulating? Am I actually releasing the eggs each month? Because it's the progesterone that causes the egg to be released. Is that right? Well, the egg release causes high progesterone. Got you. So right. um, if women are having a regular period, regular periods, most women will be ovulating. Yeah. But a high progesterone level can confirm that, which can be helpful. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we mustn't forget the male partner. No. We would do a basic semen analysis, which would tell us a little bit about the quality and the quantity of the sperm. Right. I mean, I've heard about things like sperm motility. Is that right? Correct. So How active it is. <laughs> that's correct. So that's really important. Um, most men, when they're given the report, there's no one box that gets ticked that's a great sperm test or poor sperm test. Okay. There's a variety of different parameters, usually yeah. about 12 on each report. And so it can be difficult to navigate that mm. uh, as a lay person. But the most important things we look at are the concentration of the sperm. How many are there? Motility. Are they wriggling? Right. Progressive motility. Are they wriggling in a straight line? Oh, really? And then finally, morphology, which uh, is their appearance okay. under the microscope. Wow. Do they look as if they've been drawn by Leonardo da Vinci with a beautiful oval head and a nice squiggly tail? Right. Gosh. And then if there are any issues along the way here, or even perhaps even if there aren't, are there sort of, quote, natural things that can be tried first? Can you make a difference with things like diet and lifestyle? Uh, so the answer to that is yes. Um, but it depends how much faith you can put in these things and how much movement they can give in terms mm. of your expectation of results. So diet can be important. Uh, there are certain supplements that may be helpful. So for women, folic acid supplementation is absolutely essential. So not just for preventing neural tube defects, but no. for actually encouraging conception? No, it's mainly around development of the embryo. Okay. In terms of encouraging conception, there's some interesting work coming through on vitamin D uh, really? and on omega-3 fatty acids. Do you know, we hear about these all the time for so many things. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, linked with the immune function, but vitamin D and omega-3s just seem to pop up whichever area of medicine you're looking at. It's a bit like the microbiome and gut health. You know, everything is oh. coming back to that as well. So the microbiome is where it's at in terms of fertility research. No way. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So why, why would that be? Well, it's, it's such an important part of medicine 
across all spheres of medicine. But we're understanding now, the original work was done in miscarriage. So in women that can have abnormal microbiomes are more prone to preterm labor and to miscarriage. And there are trials already underway using um, probiotics to try and keep that microbiome stabilized. Really? And what we're looking at now is to say, well, could subfertility be the earliest part of that spectrum? And so we have ongoing studies at Imperial where we're looking, studying the microbiome both within the vagina and within the womb and trying to identify uh, women with particular microbiomes, whether they are more at risk. Mm. And then ultimately, can we manipulate the microbiome sure. to get a healthier microbiome to try and improve outcomes? And are you seeing any results linked to any particular strain of bacteria? Um, so there are about five different dominant population groups. So in each woman, there will be thousands and thousands of different bacteria, mm. but they tend to be dominant with lactobacillus species. And it's the manipulation with probiotics um, that we're looking at to see if it can uh, improve outcome, reduce miscarriage, or improve chances of conceiving. It's very exciting. It's at very early stages, yeah. but it is very exciting. Yeah. I've done a little bit of research on uh, rhamnosus, for example, uh, which has been shown in some cases to help with UTIs and, and pelvic inflammatory diseases. And Yeah. I mean, many people in the field think that this is probably one of the most exciting areas of medical research at the moment, and that it will impact all sorts of different spheres. Gosh. So brilliant. Let's hear it for the gut. I mean, I've written books about gut health, so I'm so delighted that you should say that. OK, so uh, looking at diet can help. And presumably that's for both men and women. Yes. So um, I mean, probably, we talk about zinc for men, for well, example, probably, and eating oysters. And, yeah. I mean, is there any truth in that? Well, I think eating oysters are fabulous. I think if it makes you feel better, absolutely <laughs> yeah. go for it. If you look in terms of what the evidence out there is, it's probably more in favour of supplementation on the male side than it is on the really? female side. And, and one of the reasons for that is the eggs are with us from the day that we're born. Whereas we're making new sperm every minute of every day. So the male system is much more sensitive to what's going on in the environment. And it can be, you can influence the quality and the quantity of the sperm through external factors such as diet probably much more so than with eggs. Mm. And so with men, we do see them responding to things like antioxidants, zinc, selenium, mm. uh, vitamin E. Uh, there's some new work coming through with carnitine supplementation. So all of these things are exciting and they probably do have a meaningful impact. Mm, really interesting. Uh, as the mother of, of two young men, I'm very interested, of, you know, looking at, at their health growing up and also concerns about some of the reports of damage to sperm being done, for example, by having laptops on your lap, phones in your pockets. Is there evidence to show that that can have an adverse effect? So it's difficult to know. There are some research reports about being close either to electrical um, sources uh, in terms of uh, radiation. Um, but the reports are really just too small yeah. at the moment for us to really understand whether this is a significant impact or not. There does seem to be evidence to show that sperm counts all over the world are reducing. Now, at the moment, that hasn't actually turned out to really impact fertility issues yet. Because you can imagine if you drop from 120 million sperm to 80 million sperm, that's still plenty of sperm still to loss, achieve a pregnancy. Yeah. But there's something going on with male sperm counts, and we see it in clinics all over the world. And we've seen a reduction going on for probably nearly 30 years. At the same rate all over the world, or are there countries that it does are seem more to be, susceptible? It does seem to be different, and this may be a diet-related issue. We just mm. don't know. So there's lots of research to try and look into this. I think everybody accepts that the finding is real, but our understanding of why 
um, is still unclear. Which countries are worse? Well, certainly the Europeans uh, really? seem to be the worst. Um, but again, it's very difficult to know um, because one, it's a bit like testing. The more testing you do, the more things you'll find out. <laughs> yes. So it, it's, it's quite a tricky one. And it's not an area that's well understood mm-hmm. at the moment. OK, so let's go now. So you've, you've been into your GP. You've had all this, this first baseline set of tests. Nothing is, is showing up or, mm. or, or you're showing that, you know, there, there is no real reason why not. Yeah. What would the next course of action be? I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting point. About 40% of the couples that we see will do all these tests and all of the tests will be fine. Right. And for the couples, it can be very difficult emotionally to deal with that. Yeah. Because if you tell somebody, look, you've got blocked fallopian tubes, it's terrible news, but you can deal with it and mm. you can then decide what can I do about it. Mm. Or if you say to the man, look, the sperm is, is not fabulous in terms of its quality. Yeah. Again, it's not good news, but you can do something. You can make a plan. It's terribly difficult for couples to accept when you tell them everything's fine. Yeah. Um, and when we are in situations where the subfertility remains unexplained, there are really two different scenarios. Number one, there's nothing wrong. Right. And you just need a little bit more time yeah. and a little bit more patient and things will happen. Or number two, there is something going on, but it's much more subtle. And that the tests that we do at these initial phases are not sophisticated enough to give us an answer. Mm. So again, you really have to individualise. If the couple are 23 years old, and they've been trying for 12 months, it's much more likely there's nothing wrong. Right. And you might encourage it, them to say, you know, maybe give it a few more months. Yeah. Equally, if the couple are 35 and they've been trying for five years, yeah. that's not bad luck. No. That's something else is going yeah. on. And it may be then appropriate to consider some form of intervention to speed things up. So initial intervention would we be looking at IVF? Not necessarily. I, I think it's really important. Many couples feel we're not getting pregnant I need to book in for IVF. Mm. Um, And although IVF is an amazing, wonderful treatment that is very effective, it's not the only thing to consider. The best option is to have really accurate diagnosis and to try and identify a cause for the subfertility and then treat that. So, for example, if a couple are trying naturally, but the the woman's periods are irregular and she's not ovulating regularly, Mm. but everything else is fine she doesn't necessarily need to go for IVF. She could just take a medication such as Clomid, which is a tablet that's been around since 1961. Right. And actually that can be very effective, about 80% effective at giving her very regular periods. And about 50% of pregnant patients will be pregnant within six months. Just from that. And it costs £8.50. Right, that's so a very good option. Always think yes. about, yeah. can I understand what's going on and can I have a, a targeted treatment for what's affecting us as a couple? Yeah. Um, those things won't always be detected and you may have to deal with a scenario that's unexplained, but it's better to ensure that you have accurate diagnosis before rushing straight for IVF. Mm-hmm. And IVF, how many rounds of IVF do you should you put yourself through before you kind of call it a day? That's a really difficult question and, and, and has to be sort of individualised. Um, there is a cumulative chance of, IV, of IVF working, by which mm-hmm. I mean the more goes you have, the greater the chance of it working. It's a bit like trying naturally. You wouldn't right. dream of giving up after one month of trying naturally. You would just keep going. Yeah. But after three cycles of IVF, those success rates do start to flatten out a little bit. Mm. Um, and after five goes of IVF, they also begin to flatten out a little bit. Mm. It also depends a little bit about how you respond. 
So for example, if you continue to produce great numbers of eggs with lovely quality embryos, it's probably worthwhile going on a little bit longer. If, for example, in your first go, you only get maybe two eggs or one embryo, then your body might be sending you a message that this may not be the best way forward. Mm. And it's unlikely that cumulative attempts at IVF would be successful for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How does IVF work? Is there just one way of doing it? Is it one standard procedure? No, no. The principles of IVF are the same, but the approaches, there are multiple different ways of doing it. And again, you can personalize those to a woman or a couple situation. The basic principle of IVF is you obtain an egg from a woman, a sperm from a man, and they meet in the laboratory. Right. So you can actually confirm that fertilization and takes do you place. make are you the person that makes that introduction? Um, well, I sort of uh, facilitate it, right. but the actual hard work is done by the embryologists in the lab. Gosh, what an amazing so job. These are the people that patients never see. Yeah. And yet when you talk about what are the critical steps or people associated with IVF success, it's these scientists yeah. in the lab that yeah. are the critical people that are handling these delicate eggs and sperm, making sure they get together in the right environment. Mm. And then even more importantly, allowing the embryos to grow for a few days to allow us to select which ones have got the best chance of success. So how many would you grow? So on average, um, again, depends a little bit on the age of the woman. But if we get, for example, on average 10 or 11 eggs, when we put them with sperm, about two thirds will fertilize. Mm -hmm. And we leave those embryos to grow hopefully for about five days. 
And that allows us to take a sort of Darwinian survival of the strongest view. Right. And by the, end, by the end of the day, once we've got to five days, we hope that there are several blastocysts available and we would put one or two. What's a blastocyst? A blastocyst is an embryo at the fifth day of development. Right. If you imagine getting pregnant naturally, mm. the egg and sperm meet in the fallopian tube. And as that embryo is traveling down to the uterus, it's growing and it's dividing. And it only reaches the uterus on its fifth day of development. So in nature, the embryo is at the blastocyst stage when it lands in the uterus and implants. So very similar then to, to what you're doing. Well, you, that's I mean, why we, we're trying to mimic nature. Nature's showing us the way. Right. And so what we try and do is, is try and get the environment as natural as possible so that mm -hmm. when that blastocyst uh, lands in the uterus, it has the greatest chance of implanting. Except naturally, would it just be one? Fertilized egg, or, or I guess you well, twins. Most, yes, then, in most women, <laughs> or, it, will, it will be one. But twins, twins, in, or yeah, twins in this country run at about one in eighty pregnancies, so they're quite okay. common. Yeah. Triplets about one in six thousand four hundred, so less common. Mm. Uh, and of course, there are then these amazing stories of naturally occurring quads, yeah. twins, and sex triplets. So, how many of the embryos that you then say, well, these are you know viable and they're going to mm. be robust? Do you put just one back in? Do you put them all back? So, in the vast majority of women these days, we put one back. And it's been a real advance in reproductive medicine, improving the safety of the technique. Uh, you may be familiar with headlines from years gone by of my IVF quads and, and all right. these. Yes. Um, these are now considered a treatment failure because they, the prognosis yeah. of getting a triplet or a quad pregnancy, the risk of miscarriage is so high and premature sure. birth is so high. So one of the recent successes uh, in reproductive medicine has been the encouragement of selecting the one best embryo. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing that in the UK now, probably for about six or seven years. And we've managed to get the multiple pregnancy rate down to less than 10%. But at the same time, we've maintained our success rates. Mm. So it's been a really big advance in the field that, um, that was really led initially by the Scandinavians and the Belgians, but is now traveling around the world. Mm. So what happens to the remaining embryos? Are so if they, they are good quality, or? if they're good quality, we would encourage the couple to freeze the embryos. Right. Uh, and when you freeze an embryo, you sort of fix it in time. So if you are 30... Are you literally just putting it in the freezer? It's a little more technical than that. <laughs> um, what we, the, the process is now called vitrification which is essentially flash freezing by placing the embryo into a, a bowl of liquid nitrogen. Now, if you can imagine that cells are mostly water, but if you allowed them to freeze, that would expand and disrupt and kill the cell. So we freeze the embryo so quickly that ice crystals can't form. And as a result, the cell uh, membranes all remain intact. And the, if you freeze an embryo at age 30, the embryo will always think that you are 30. So even if you return five, six, seven years later, you will have the success rates of the 30-year-old. So even if, say, you were 80 yes. and popped it back in, yes. would the embryo still think, I've got a nice 30-year-old nest to grow in? Uh, so the nest would be 80 years old. Yes. Okay. But the reality is that the uterus ages much slower than the ovaries. So when it comes to time sensitivity, um, the uterus can be very robust. And, and we see these stories of women conceiving in their 50s, 60s and 70s. But the eggs will not be 50 or 60 years old. Right. The eggs will be younger. So is this why there is this real um, kind of exploration now going on with a lot of 
younger women, well, younger in my my terms, younger, younger in their sort of 30s uh, and, you know, maybe even early 40s who would like to have a child but are perhaps not in a relationship or for whatever reason decide that, that they, they want to freeze their eggs for the future. Um, so, yeah, so th- there are... Or there they're are... having medical treatment that, that might prohibit a pregnancy later on sure. for whatever reason, chemotherapy or so something. So there have been two things really that have driven egg freezing. Number one, there's been a demographic change. So as you describe, there is a uh, a, a group uh, of women and sometimes men who feel now is not the right time to get a pregnant um, for whatever reason. There's yeah. a variety of different reasons for that. Can I freeze my eggs now? Mm. Um, hope and pray I never need to use them that I do still get pregnant the old-fashioned way in years to come. But is it some form of reassurance to have these things in the freezer? Um, And I think there are more people that are thinking that way. Because to your point, if you freeze an egg age 30, that will always be an egg from a 30-year-old. That's correct. But the science has only just caught up with that demographic movement. So I've been freezing eggs for more than 15 years. uh, And we started off doing this in cancer patients who are facing chemotherapy or radiotherapy. But the results were not great. Okay, really? they were about eight percent chance of pregnancy. Eight, eight. That's not great, is it? So when women would come to us and say, "Look, I I don't want to get pregnant now, but I want to freeze my eggs. Mm. Can I do it?" We would try and put them off. Sure. Because it's not an insurance <clears throat> policy if you've only got an eight percent chance of having a pregnancy. No. Um, now what's happened is the science has moved on, and it's been this science of vitrification, which comes from Japan originally that now is giving women much more confidence that if I freeze the eggs now, there is a good chance this is going to help me have a baby later on. And so that sort of science and demographic move have now come together uh, and egg freezing is becoming increasingly more popular. Mm. So would you suggest then that you can freeze your, you know, you could freeze eggs on their own, presumably, and then maybe wait for a partner? Or would you, for example, if you were having medication, would it be better to freeze embryos? Okay, so in the past, freezing embryos was always better. Was it? And we would always say if there is a man around or if there's donor sperm around, let's let's use that. Because the success rates were significantly different. Now what's happened is vitrification has got the success rates pretty much the same uh, as embryo freezing. They're probably about 2% difference, which is probably not meaningful. Mm. And so now you can have pretty much the same level of confidence in freezing your eggs as previously you would have had about freezing your embryos. Mm. It's still early. It's still yeah. new. You know, we have hundreds of thousands of frozen baby, of frozen embryos giving us babies. Yes. But the number of frozen eggs that have led to babies is still relatively small. Is it? Okay, so we're still learning. But the numbers look reassuring and the data looks optimistic. Mm. And is this something that is only available privately or can you apply on the NHS? So for the NHS, we can do egg freezing for medical reasons. So, for example, if you're facing chemotherapy, radiotherapy or surgery, something that will compromise your future fertility. Most health authorities these days will fund that on the NHS. Yeah. If you're doing it more from um, elective freezing, social reasons, whatever Mm. it might be, it would be very unusual for the NHS to freeze that. Most of those patients end up seeking treatment in the private sector. Mm -hmm. And are you only talking about freezing your own eggs or presumably you can have donor eggs? I mean, how does that, that, that's a whole nother area of fertility, isn't it? Where you get, you know, we've talked about couples in a relationship, presumably, but I guess there are times when, you know, there can be no sperm available or maybe even no egg. 
How, mm. how does that all work? So um, it, it works along, along a similar sort of uh, philosophical approach. So um, people can become egg donors and sperm donors. In the UK, it's an altruistic action. You're not paid for your donation. Right. You are given some money to compensate you for your expenses. But it is essentially an altruistic act. Mm. And that would then allow a variety of different treatment options. So it would allow single women to become pregnant using donor sperm. Mm -hmm. It would allow couples to become pregnant if the male partner has no sperm or very poor sperm. Mm. Uh, or the other way around. If the female partner has had a menopause or her egg quality is very poor, she could then access an egg donor and become pregnant. Um, and it's allowing women, um, many people think that the only egg recipients are ladies in their late 40s or early 50s. Mm. But I look after many women who go through an early menopause. Sure. I menopause. mean, it's not crazily uncommon, is it? Absolutely. Unfortunately. Mm. And, you know, in the past, if you went through the menopause at 22, that was it. There was no hope. Yeah. But now with egg donation, uh, if it's acceptable to those people, then they can achieve very high rates of pregnancy. Really? Um, you know, as high as 50% per attempt and 90% after three attempts. Gosh, and that's because going through early menopause, they're just not releasing their own eggs. They don't have their oestrogen. That's correct. So it relates to what we said earlier. The uterus doesn't really age. Um, and so if you can produce an egg, even though your uterus may not have been exposed to female hormones for 10 or 15 years, mm. often it will recover once we give the uterus uh, hormones uh, and the womb lining will thicken up to become receptive. Mm. It's all such an, an extraordinary world and you've obviously been working in it for a long time. How have things like regulations changed? So this is probably the most regulated area of UK medicine. Yeah. I mean, we well, you're have, dealing with making people. Aren't it's you? I mean, it's that an is, absolutely critical issue. In, in one level, people will say, well, this is, you know, Frankenstein. This is kind of the stuff of horror movies. I think it's really important that the public have faith in the integrity of people working in the field. Yeah. And to assist the public in having that faith, um, the field is very heavily regulated. Mm. The UK led the world in IVF, and the first IVF baby was born in the UK. Um, and interestingly, it's also led the world in regulation. Um, and mostly that regulation has been quite permissive. So it's allowed us to do most things, but in a way that's transparent, is audited, and is, is known. So the worry or the concern about some crazy Frankenstein laboratory mm. um, experimenting on embryos yeah. certainly wouldn't happen in the UK. Um, and, and that, in fact, that regulation has been expanded to many parts of the world. Some people have been concerned that it can stifle innovation and that it can stifle um, sort of new discoveries. Um, but I think if th there's a balance to be had. Sure. You know, there's a balance to be struck between public understanding and confidence uh, and scientific innovation. And mm. I think at the moment, the UK has probably got it about right. Mm. It must be a very difficult line to draw, though, because, you know, you're working particularly with um, sort of genetic manipulation, pre-implantation. And we talked about, you know, being able to eradicate, you know, really horrible diseases, cystic fibrosis and, you know, life-limiting genetic conditions. But where where is the line drawn? Yeah, the line is moving. Is it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you look at pre-implantation genetic testing that we discussed earlier, what you're doing there is you're diagnosing disease in embryos, but you're not actually manipulating or changing the embryo. You're just removing way. the dangerous bit. No, yeah? that no? is just looking to see if embryo A has the disease and embryo B does not have the disease, we put embryo B 
back Fine. into the patient. Mm -hmm. So you're identifying problems in an embryo, but you're not manipulating or doing anything about it. Yeah. But of course now with CRISPR technology, which is the mm. scissor editing of the genetic code, yeah. there is the ability to do this. So we have to ask ourselves some very, very careful questions. We now have the tools to be doing genetic engineering. What are the ethics? What is the public concern about this area? Are there things that we can do which are justified? Yeah. And are there other things that we may feel uncomfortable about going in a particular direction? Mm. So the first genetic editing has been done in embryos and there were babies born in China uh, that had their genes modified as pre-implantation embryos. And how were they modified? What sort of things were they doing? It was a very unusual case. They were removing the receptors for the HIV virus. So the mother in the experiment had HIV and they were hoping by modifying the embryo's genes that the embryo would therefore not have HIV transmitted to it. It's a very unusual case. Gosh. I'm not quite sure if it would be the pioneer case that I would choose. Mm. Um, and actually, it was very much a vilified experiment. Mm. Uh, and that particular experimentation work has been stopped, which is, I think, the right thing. So there's a moratorium on this field at the moment, mm. while both scientists, ethicists, philosophers, Gosh, funders yes. yeah. all get together to try and figure out which way do we want to go. Mm. If you are considering having uh, an embryo, um, transplant, um, if that's the right way to, to phrase it. Are there best ages? I mean, you, you mentioned really interestingly that the uterus doesn't age. So is this something that we can consider much later in life? Um, so uh, there are two sort of answers to that. Number one, coldly, it's possible to get somebody pregnant pretty much at any age. Wow. Um, <laughs> But there's, a, there's, a, there's a bigger question, isn't there? There's a big question. Uh, is it a great idea yes. to be a mum at much sta later stages of life? Yeah. And it's hard because I think society looks at men and women in different ways. For you know, sure. if you look at fathers having babies in their 70s, Charlie Chaplin, Pablo Picasso, yeah. they don't face the same vilification. Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. <laughs> they don't face this Donald no. Trump. You yeah. know, <laughs> they don't face the yeah. same vilification as women in yeah. their 60s, so choosing right. to have babies. So I think there's a scientific discussion to be had, but there's probably a more society-based discussion to have about how we view these things. Mm. Uh, and, and my own view um, is that it's going to evolve. Mm. Uh, and I think that the lines that we have in the sand now in terms of what we think to be acceptable, as time goes by, I think there will be more discussion. And I think our view of families will become different. Yeah. And I think our view of motherhood will become different. Yeah, well, speaking as an older mother, that's that's certainly something that, that applied to me. At what age do, do women technically get this dreadful label, geriatric pregnancy? Well, well again, it's it's an appalling term, isn't it? Isn't it? Talk, I talk was about geriatric judgmental. pregnancy. It's like, yeah. thanks a lot. <laughs> and to be introduced that with your first visit to the antenatal clinic, you come through the door smiling with your new files, you've had a new scan, yeah. and you're welcomed as a geriatric mum. So I, I would I would throw that out the window. I, I'm not quite sure if we should be using that term at all. Yeah. There but is, but is, is there a set age? Is there well, a line that you cross? The, the, there is there is an issue in terms of do the risks go up as we get older? Yeah. Uh, and that's true. OK, so we can't dismiss the concept completely. Um, but the reality is, um, you know, more and more women are having babies later on. When you talk life. about risks, are you talking about uh, diseases 
for the baby, like Down syndrome or... So, it, no, it would be risk tube. both for the baby and for the mum. Okay. So the older we get, there's no doubt um, if we're using our, our own eggs as we get older that there are increased uh, genetic risks such as Down syndrome for the baby, mm -hmm. but also risks for the mum, particularly around blood pressure issues. Mm -hmm. um, now, so we tend to monitor uh, older women in pregnancies a little bit more we tend to be a little bit more anxious when they get to term. So we're less likely to allow them to go over their dates because of small increases in stillbirth. So this would be what, over the age of 40? Uh, that's probably uh, a fair amount. Um, it's also true, though, you know, that I'll see many patients who are 40 who, are look, who look 30. Yeah. And who look after themselves are in great shape, yeah, eat yeah, great diet. So I think age is important, but I think it's also important mm. to, to individualise the patient to look at her particular needs and risks. Yeah, indeed. Is it true that there is a sort of a, a last fertility hurrah, if you like, a last spike before menopause? Sort of. There is something <laughs> to that. And it, it's one of the reasons why we see more twins in older women. So what happens each month, we our ovaries present a batch of eggs and they will vary in quality and quantity each month. And then the brain secretes a hormone called FSH, which drives the ovary to produce and mature those eggs. Now, when we are 18 years old, our FSH levels are very low because they only have to just tickle the ovaries and the eggs are released. Mm. As we get older and we have fewer eggs, our FSH levels start to climb. Mm. And as we get into our 40s, they can become much higher. Yeah, that's why for menopause, that's one of the tests, isn't it? Correct. The blood test is, is your FSH. Now, what can happen if in a particular month you present a fabulous batch of eggs in quality and quantity and they are exposed to these very high FSH levels, mm. then you may get more than one egg that grows. That's interesting because I had um, a late pregnancy. I was 47, nearly 48. And I remember going for my first scan. And the first thing that the, the specialist said was, well, you know, uh, you, know you, you have just got one in there. And I'm, I was like, well, why on earth would I have more than one? Because, you know, that was something that they were looking for. So that's the reason. We, we see more mm. twin pregnancies as we get later on in life because of these FSH levels. Yeah. I do remember talking about risks because um, you know, it, it was a pregnancy that took me by surprise. And so I had not been diligently taking my folic acid and all these other things that, you know, I had done with earlier pregnancies. And I remember saying, you know, what risk... And, and you, obviously you can do the nuchal fold test mm. and all this sort of things, which I did. Um, and the, 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 the chap I was talking to said, well, kind of tongue in cheek, he said, well, actually, you know, you have no risk. And I said, what do you mean I have no risk? And he said, well, the tables only go up as far as 45. <laughs> so technically you're not you're not on the chart. So there is no risk. So, you know, obviously, um, but, you know, all was very well. But presumably, you know, these are factors that everybody has to consider as as we age. And does that does that kind of bring us round back to the the question of the development of, of looking at things like egg freezing at a younger age, potentially? So, uh, yes, I think that's true. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a really difficult one, the egg freezing at a younger age, because on one hand, you can see it as this almost amazing scientific advance that's empowering. It's almost a feminist issue. You know, yeah. I can take control of my yeah, reproduction. Yeah, I'm going to choose and when it suits me. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's the end of the asymmetry between men and women worrying about time sensitivity and reproduction. Yeah. So, you know, some people will see it as a very powerful um, option for women to exercise. But if you look at it the other way around, you could say, well, are we just exploiting women's reproductive anxiety? Are the vast majority of women going to get pregnant the old fashioned way? Mm -hmm. And actually, are we going to be putting many women through unnecessary, invasive, expensive treatment 
to have an insurance policy that they'll never use. Mm. So it's a it's a sophisticated argument, and you will find people that believe passionately, almost evangelically, yeah. on either side of that yeah. argument. And I think, you know, as a responsible um, sort of medical and scientific community, we've got to have that debate. Mm. Um, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle, yeah. but you can see why it polarizes opinion. Yeah, it's all so fascinating. Honestly, thank you so much for coming. And I've learned so much and I'm sure everybody listening to will as well. And I'll make sure that we put lots of resources online and so that people can kind of follow up this discussion. And yeah, amazing. I'd love to hear in the future more about what's going on. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. And as always, you can find all the links and the resources that we've mentioned on today's show over on LizelleWellbeing.com. And there you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter, jam-packed with well-being wisdom and delicious recipes. Huge thanks to all of you who've left us such lovely reviews. We love reading them and it really does help others to find the show. So until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, with production by Amaryllis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue. With thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.